Hello, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. As nations in Latin America have become wealthier and more stable in recent years, they are seeking to engage the United States and the world on a more level playing field. In this podcast, Harold Trincunas, director of the Latin America Initiative at Brookings, talks about the challenges and opportunities for the region, with particular attention to Brazil's rise as a global power. Harold, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Could you start by uh, saying how you came to Brookings and, and what your role is at Brookings? Currently, I'm the director of the Latin America Initiative in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. I joined Brookings about nine months ago. Uh, before that, I was a professor at the Naval Postgraduate School out in Monterey, California. Uh, spent most of my career focusing on Latin American politics uh, with a great deal of uh, interest in areas related to defense, security, foreign policy, uh, and uh, more broadly, political economy. Uh, so in the Latin American Initiative, we focus on the issues related to foreign policy, defense and security in Latin America, although we also uh, have an interest in some of the economic and social issues uh, that, that are considered by our sister program, ESPLA, over in the global development program here at Brookings. Okay. Uh, well, we're going to talk broadly about Latin America, but also I want to make sure we have some time to focus heavily on Brazil, because I know that's an area that you're, you're really looking at. I want to start by playing a tape of something that Secretary of State John Kerry said to the Organization of American States last fall. Today, however, we have made a different choice. The era of the Monroe Doctrine is over. The relationship, that's worth applauding, that's not a bad thing. The era of the Monroe Doctrine is over, he said. Was this a major policy statement or just an acknowledgement of how much Latin America has changed anyway over the past decades? I think it's the latter. Uh, Latin America over the last couple of decades has really changed in remarkable, remarkable ways. I think ways that uh, Washington hasn't always entirely kept up with. Uh, the region is generally uh, wealthier, uh, more stable politically, uh, has made great pro progress in the area of uh, democracy, although there's a few countries that uh, uh, we could talk about that, that where that's uh, a little bit more problematic. Um, and I think it's uh, Secretary Kerry's statement is really a reflection of the fact that uh, the United States and Latin America are partnering on a more level playing field that, than at any other time in the past. But I also think it's an important signal that Secretary Kerry was trying to send to the region that the U.S. realizes and acknowledges this, uh, at least uh, uh, from the perspective of, of the Obama administration. So the U.S. acknowledges this, but we hear in the in the U.S. media, at least, especially recently, a lot of talk about the U.S. pivot to Asia, and then Ukraine is in the news, and what what's happening in Europe and the Middle East, and then uh, terrible things happen in Africa, like in Nigeria, and we hear that. We don't hear a lot of news coming out of the, the nations of, of Latin America. Why do you think that is? I think that's in part a reflection of the fact that Latin America has developed and uh, become uh, more autonomous economically, uh, more stable politically, has uh, by and large benefited greatly from uh, uh, the global commodity boom during the past decade and become wealthier. Um, Latin America is basically classified as a middle and upper middle income region of the world. And it just doesn't experience the kinds of crises uh, that other parts of the globe are currently experiencing. And because of that, uh, it's fading uh, somewhat in the news. That's not to say that there aren't crises. I mean, we are tracking issues such as uh, organized crime in, in Mexico and Central America, for example, uh, um, or major trade uh, negotiations that are involving the countries on the Pacific coast of Latin America. But these are not the kinds of crises that grab headlines. 
Switching to some of those cross-national issues uh, on the economic front, as you say, that uh, Latin American nations are growing, the middle-class populations are expanding, but there are still areas of extreme poverty and, and income inequality uh, in various places in the region. Can you talk to that? Yeah, I, I think there's really two stories going on here. One is uh, the expansion of the middle class in Latin America, uh, and the other is the great progress some countries have made in reducing poverty and increasing social inclusion, uh, although that is an uneven uh, degree of progress, and not all countries have been able to achieve that. Um, I think when we look at the issue of uh, inclusion and uh, reduction in poverty, the region really has benefited from uh, an above average rate of economic growth for the past decade. Um, the region is starting to turn the corner a little bit on that. I think there, there are some uh, uh, a few clouds ahead on the horizon when it comes to the economy. Uh, but uh, a number of governments in the region, in Brazil, uh, in Mexico, um, and uh, some of the other uh, countries in the region have been able to use that to bring in uh, traditionally excluded, excluded groups. Uh, there still are places where people remain excluded. Uh, there's still problems with access to education, uh, weak infrastructure, which impedes access to markets. Uh, but uh, by and large, there is some good news on that front. On the other hand, what that means is that there's also a new and growing middle class in Latin America, and it's an insecure middle class. Uh, it's a class that middle class that feels that its uh, foundations rest on, rest on shaky economic grounds. Uh, people are starting to see that the commodity boom is winding down, and that might have some implications for slower economic growth in the future uh, for many countries in the region. And it's also a middle class that feels like it's not getting the kinds of services from its government uh, that it would expect. Uh, so, in terms of good schools, public safety, good roads, um, job stability. These are the kinds of things that people in the, in the new middle class in Latin America don't necessarily see, uh, uh, and they're starting to um, make demands on their governments uh, uh, for improvements in these areas. Our colleague Carol Graham has uh, done some work to show that unrest in, in some countries is not driven by the poorest people, but by the middle class, people who have perhaps more to lose. How, how is that playing out in some of the countries in Latin America that have experienced some unrest recently? No, I think that uh, um, uh, Carol Graham's research, which is excellent, points exactly to the, uh, the phenomenon that's driving uh, some of the social protests in Latin America uh, that we see today in countries like um, uh, Venezuela most recently, but we've seen also in Brazil, in Argentina, in Chile, in Peru. Um, we have to understand that many of the members who have joined the middle class uh, in uh, uh, in recent years still remember a time when they were not middle class. They know what it's like to be uh, to be poor, to be excluded, and so that memory um, drives their aspiration for improved uh, uh, standard of living, a more secure standard of living, uh, but also better uh, government services, getting something in return for the taxes that they're now paying. Uh, so that phenomenon is replicated. I mean, the particulars of what the protest might be about might differ from country to country. It might be about democracy and security in Venezuela, and it might be about public transport and the cost of living in Brazil, but it's still basically a demand for uh, a more secure status as a middle class. Let's switch to trade because you just referenced some of the big trade agreements that are on the table now. And there's, there's two in particular, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the uh, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Can you talk about uh, how big of a deal it is for the, the nations in Latin America that are attached to either of those? I think that that's going to be a major inflection point for Latin America going forward when it comes to trade. Over the last 20 years, uh, we've seen the attempt to build regional 
trade agreements in the, uh, in the Americas. First, the free trade area of the Americas, uh, something that was pushed by uh, the United States after the 1994 NAFTA agreements, uh, and also in parallel, uh, Brazilian efforts to promote regional integration in South America through Mercosur uh, and later the Union of South American uh, Nations. Um, Today, we're seeing these trans-regional trade negotiations, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership that break away from this regional mold. And in Latin America, it's really the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that, which includes a number of countries on the Pacific side of the, of the continent, that is really drawing the most attention. And it reflects the fact that countries such as Chile and Mexico are, are much more interested in a free trade, uh, open market, high quality, next generation trade agreements uh, in comparison to the more traditional trade agreements that countries on the Atlantic side, especially uh, around Brazil and Mercosur have pursued. So in the future, this might mean that the countries that do end up participating in something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership will, in a sense, pull away economically from other countries in the region. And this is going to fragment some of those regional integration efforts that we've seen in the past uh, decade or two. And in thinking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think what's on some people's minds is China and its uh, involvement in Latin America. Can you talk to China's involvement in Latin America? Um, I, I think there's you have to think of this uh, on a couple different levels. The first is um, Latin America's, uh, uh, especially South America's trade, has considerably diversified over the past two or three decades, in large part driven by the demand for commodities uh, out of Asia, especially China. So China's involvement in Latin America is, is largely related to its interest in accessing those natural resources uh, that uh, uh, Latin America has. And in this sense, it's treading a path that a number of other countries have pursued in the past, the British in the 19th century, the US in the 20th century, uh, Japan in, in, in the late 20th century, uh, coming to South America in search of those commodities. Um, now, of course, that has that's a two-edged sword for, for South America because while it does promote trade and investment in the region, it promotes it on a pretty narrow segment of the economy, and it, in in many ways, China competes directly with the manufacturers in many large uh, Latin American countries. So, for example, while Brazil's agricultural sector uh, benefits tremendously from the relationship to China, its manufacturing sector sees China as a competitive threat. And so, this is something the governments in the region have had to balance in in recent times. Um, more specifically for some of the smaller countries in the region, it's not so much China that's a concern. It's the Trans-Pacific Partnership's relations with the low labor cost countries in Asia, which is not China anymore, but countries like Vietnam, for example. They, countries in Central America worry about competition in the textile sector, for example, where they're major exporters to the United States and, and really see this as a, as a potential problem for their, for their economy. So there's another level to this uh, there as well. I think it's a very interesting phenomenon that uh, we're talking about Latin American nations' relations with other countries in the world. And you, you've written about this, not through the prism of the United States, uh, kind of going back to John Kerry saying the Monroe Doctrine is over. I mean, we're seeing, and this is globally, we're seeing nations around the world and in this region you know, engaging in their own rise, if you will, and engaging in their own partnership seeking uh, regionally, but also internationally. I think that's a that's a very fair statement. It, it's a reflection of the fact that Latin America is uh, considerably wealthier and politically more stable uh, 
uh, and as we mentioned at the beginning of, of, of this discussion, uh, less prone to crises, uh, means that it's better positioned to seek out relationships with other countries in the world on, on a more level playing field. Uh, and I think this is a big difference for Latin America if we think back to, for example, the 1980s or the 1990s where Latin America was experiencing first a debt crisis and then a series of uh, macroeconomic financial crises that really disrupted its ability to uh, seek out uh, uh, partnerships with the rest of the world on a sort of a more equal basis. And with that, I think Americans at least, so back to the American-centric point of view, we're seeing a, a change in the kind of um, the politics throughout the region. Um, I think the United States uh, presidents have had good bilateral relationships with uh, Mexico's leaders, mm-hmm. uh, although we've got strained relations with uh, the leaders in, say, uh, Venezuela and Bolivia. Uh, but then we have Dilma Rousseff in Brazil, who's got some issues with the with the current U.S. administration over some issues, um, Kirchner in Argentina. Can you talk to some of the political developments um, in the region? Right. Um, I think that the, the region has evolved in an interesting way and in this is largely a reflection of the success in consolidating uh, uh, democracy or at least elections uh, across the region as a means of selecting governments. And we've seen a, a more, di- in a sense, diversity in the election of leaders. Um, uh, also, uh, given Latin America's greater wealth and autonomy and more uh, of an openness to sort of criticizing or disagreeing with the United States uh, on, on certain policy issues. but. What we're also seeing in countries uh, such as Venezuela and Bolivia, for example, is a reflection of the fact that democracy is consolidated at different speeds or that people have developed different co- concepts of democracy uh, and there's uh, disagreements over that. Uh, and, and really uh, across the region, we're seeing uh, uh, basically uh, uh, the fact that presidents have a great deal more power than the other branches of government and a lot of uh, the policy issues get presidentialized in a sense. Presidents make a lot of these decisions. So it, ma- it matters a great deal who's actually in charge. Those changes in leadership actually lead to significant changes in policy. Um, so leaders such as Evo Morales or uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela before he passed away are really able to drive major differences in their country's policies towards the region and towards the United States. So before we switch to Brazil, the high-level view of Latin America, if you had to give sort of the, quote, elevator speech, the 30 to 60-second summation of of why it matters. What would you say? I think that there's at least four four things we have to pay attention to uh, uh, going forward uh, in Latin America. One is Latin America has gone through this period of, of, of significant above average growth has really allowed it to mature and made it a uh, much more important player uh, in the world economy and world politics. After all, Brazil, for example, is now seventh largest economy in the world. That's a major change in Latin America's role in the world. Um, however, we are starting to see uh, this commodity boom that powered a lot of this growth winding down. So we're, we are going to see a shakeout among countries in the region as to uh, which economies have been sort of managed with an eye towards macroeconomic stability and which countries are going to experience some uh, need to, to undergo uh, uh, economic adjustment. Um, we're also seeing a, a major success story in Latin America in terms of reducing poverty and expanding the middle class. But again, this is a phenomenon that we're going to have to watch carefully uh, as economies slow down, which governments are going to be able to sustain uh, uh, those gains and which ones are going to experience some uh, issues there, either falling back or uh, higher levels of protest. Um, the trade issue, which we already discussed, is obviously going to be a major uh, issue, especially how Latin America fits into the global trade, uh, not just the countries on the Pacific side that are participating in this, but the countries that are not participating in it, which include major economies like Brazil. Uh, uh, and finally, something we haven't t- touched on too much uh, uh, yet, I think uh, an important thing to think about is how does Latin America deal with the growing 
growing rate of uh, crime, especially transnational crime, in certain sectors uh, of the region. Um, this is something that impacts economies, impacts society, impacts migration uh, uh, in the region. And this is something that Latin America still has to solve. It's, it's a paradox that Latin America is, when it comes to relations between countries, is literally the most peaceful part of the, of the globe. Whereas domestically, some of these countries are incredibly violent. Let's switch to Brazil now. It's the, it's the largest uh, nation in the Latin American region. As you said, it has the world's seventh largest economy. Uh, you show in your report, uh, it's called Brazil's Rise, Seeking Influence on Global Governance. It has the, uh, it's the 11th in terms of military expenditures. And I'm going to quote from your report. You write, Brazil stands at a crossroads in its road to major power status. It can either continue its ascent or it can remain a middle power, albeit a critical one, within the existing international status quo. So it looks like Brazil possibly has a choice. What do you mean by that? It, it's um, Brazil has a choice in the sense that it, it's on the cusp of achieving that uh, major power status. It, it has unprecedented opportunities during the past decade to insert itself into uh, global governance uh, in a way that it's really been seeking to do for at least 100 years. I mean, one of the things the report documents is the fact that Brazil has been seeking to influence global government governance at least since uh, its participation in, in World War One and, and Versailles afterwards in the peace negotiations that, that followed that war. But Brazil basically seeks to become one of the countries that participates in shaping the rules governing the global order. But what that means for Brazil in terms of, of, of the kind of world it would like to see is a world where the rules of global order tread very lightly on country sovereignty. Brazil is a country that believes in uh, sovereignty, equality among nations, non-intervention in each other's political affairs, in the rule of international law, uh, that these should be the dominant factors guiding uh, global governance. And this, on the one hand, puts it at odds with some of the more interventionist countries in the international system, but it also differentiates it from some of the more authoritarian countries as well. So Brazil is in this very interesting middle position uh, uh, in terms of the kind of world that envisions even as it rises uh, in terms of its economy and other uh, kinds of power uh, to really become more influential. Is there a tension there between wanting to influence the rules but also holding fast to the uh, priority of sovereignty and non-intervention. Absolutely. And this is one of the unresolved uh, issues that Brazil faces as it becomes a, a more influential country uh, in the international system. Um, and it's something and it is still feeling its way through. Uh, if you look at the way Brazil has participated in managing recent international uh, crises such as the global financial crises or uh, the intervention in Libya or negotiations over global climate change, uh, Brazil has very much had to play off on this tension between wanting to be at the table, uh, helping to set the rules, and trying to make sure those rules uh, uh, respect national sovereignty as much as possible. So in one sense, this is very much part of Brazil's uh, national tradition. Uh, we also have to keep in mind that like most rising powers, they'd prefer to have rules governing the global order that are, are not too binding on them, uh, but uh, uh, restrict the actions of the major powers that, that are already in charge so that they have the most uh, you know, freedom of action while uh, the existing powers are a little bit more constrained. So Brazil is, is the B in the acronym BRICS. Uh, which I, I learned from your report is a Goldman Sachs invention. Uh, but that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and then more recently South Africa has been added to that. Now, uh, in, again, in the media, we hear a lot about Russia, a lot about India, a lot about China, very little about South Africa. 
uh, and very little about Brazil in, in terms of those countries. And yet, as you, as you said, it's the seventh largest economy in the world. Do you think that's a fair observation? And, and what are the implications of that view for Brazil and for you know, global relations? Yeah, what's interesting is that Brazil has taken the BRICS um, brand very seriously um, and, uh, uh, in fact, has participated very actively in the summits of the BRICS countries, um, sees working with the other BRICS powers as a, as a key part of its strategy to influence uh, global governance. Um, but it the interesting thing about Brazil among the BRICS, and I think in this way it's closer to South Africa, is that it's not part of any regional power rivalries. I mean, it's not the way that we might look at India and China as having a rivalry in Asia or that Russia might have uh, rivalry with Western Europe and the United States over issues such as Ukraine. Uh, Brazil uh, is rising uh, without the kind of geopolitical challenges from its neighbors that other countries experience. And, and this means that it doesn't attract uh, uh, the kind of attention that otherwise uh, might develop around regional tensions or crises that you see uh, 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 in other parts of the world. And in a sense, this this is part of what uh, Brazil's unprecedented advantage is at, at this point in time. Do you think it is constrained by its uh, military priorities? In a sense, Brazil has always downplayed um, the use of military force as a means of resolving uh, international uh, crises or tensions. Uh, this is very much part of their tradition of emphasizing diplomacy, but it's also sensible. I mean, Brazil, geopolitically and geostrategically speaking, is a long way from the rest of the world. Um, its ability to use military power to influence outcomes in other uh, uh, parts of the world is, is would be quite low anyway. Um, so it makes sense to focus on diplomacy and economics uh, as a way to influence uh, a global order as opposed to military power. So last year, Edward Snowden uh, revealed that the National Security Agency was was monitoring the the phones of various world leaders, including Germany's Angela Merkel, and as we found out, President Dilma Rousseff of Brazil. Um, she canceled her summit with President Obama last year, and then she called for a uh, kind of an internet connection that would bypass uh, the United States. Uh, can you talk about how Brazil and, and other nations in the region are thinking about internet governance? Um, Brazil has really taken the lead on this in, in the region, but also globally speaking. Uh, they're one of the major countries uh, that have focused on the implications of uh, the Snowden affair uh, for global internet governance. Um, uh, specifically on the Snowden uh, uh, revelations, uh, President Rousseff was not just uh, motivated by the traditional Brazilian concerns over sovereignty, which uh, we were discussed are, are very important to Brazil. Um, but also because those revelations came at a politically sensitive time for President Rousseff. I mean, she was in the uh, uh, in the year before uh, presidential uh, uh, elections in which she is running uh, for a second term. Um, President Rousseff is also somebody who in uh, her earlier life uh, experienced surveillance by the military government in Brazil uh, uh, when she was a, a, a guerrilla and insurgent uh, against the military government uh, back in the in the 60s and 70s. So she has her own uh, sort of personal and political reasons for opposing this as well as Brazilian state reasons for opposing uh, uh, this kind of uh, surveillance. Uh, uh, now, the 
the way Brazil is thinking about uh, global internet governance, it's really a swing vote in a sense in the global debate on internet governance, which ranges from the United States and the United Kingdom, which advocate an open multi-stakeholder approach to managing uh, global internet governance. Uh, and at the other end of the spectrum, countries like Russia and China, which advocate basically national sovereignty of the internet and the ability to restrict the inflow of information across their borders. Um, where Brazil has come down most recently, uh, although it originally started out a little bit closer to Russia and China in terms of the sovereignty issue, Brazil, uh, most recently in the Net Mundial conference that just uh, concluded uh, in Brazil, came down on the side of multi-stakeholder governance, uh, by which they mean the inclusion of civil society in the private sector, along with governments, in making decisions about how internet is governed, as long as it was decentered from the United States, as long as some of the institutions, such as ICANN, sort of detached themselves more from the United States and became more global, more international uh, in their uh, uh, organization and composition. Uh, so this reflects Brazil's perspective on dealing with the issue. It, it understands that the way of managing the global internet that has developed so far, which is this multi-stakeholder approach, is an effective way of managing the internet. But it does want to correct what it sees as some of the problems, this kind of close attachment to the United States by making it more of an international uh, uh, management process. So in Brazil uh, last year, I believe, there were some widespread protests throughout the country. What was driving those issues and in, in, in the movement behind it? Where is it now? And, and how is that kind of playing into President Rousseff's reelection campaign? It's um, going to become an issue again this summer because the protests, which died down in the last few months, are likely to come back during the, the, the World Cup games that are taking place in Brazil uh, in June and July. Um, the original protests, uh, which were sparked by concerns over the cost of transportation, uh, but more generally over the cost of living, capture part of this, this middle class anxiety that we discussed earlier, where people feel that uh, the cost of living, uh, poor government services, and problems with uh, uh, public safety, for example, are all sources uh, of concern for, for them. Uh, as a middle class and also something that the government should be doing more about. In Brazil, this um, combined with uh, concerns over the amount of money that the government was spending to prepare for these major international sporting events such as the World Cup in 2014 and the 2016 Olymp Summer Olympics in, in Rio de Janeiro. So it really became part of a broader critique of how the government was spending its money and how the government is managing public policy. Um, and while this died down in the last few uh, since last summer, the reason I say it's likely to come back is because the World Cup is really going to shine much more focused media spotlight on Brazil and activists in Brazil understand that and see that as an opportunity to uh, pressure the government uh, to achieve some uh, uh, gains on, on their demands. So what's at stake uh, in a healthy U.S.-Brazil bilateral relationship for each other, the region and the world? Well, in the long term, for the United States, uh, looking out at this group of rising powers uh, that we see out there, the BRICS and, and other countries that are, are becoming more capable, becoming wealthier, becoming more influential uh, in global governance, Brazil is really a country whose citizens share many of the same values, democratic values, uh, economic values, as do citizens in the United States. So even though the two countries have this testy relationship over issues such as NSA surveillance, over uh, the management of uh, international affairs in the Americas, 
in the long run, Brazil is likely to be the country among, if we look out at Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, Brazil is likely to be closer to the United States in terms of those values. So I think in the long run, Brazil uh, is a country that the U.S. should bet on improving its relations with over time, even though there will be these episodes of friction. For Brazil, the relationship with the United States, I think, is critical as well. Uh, it, for many of the same reasons. The United States is a, uh, another democracy. It's very similar to Brazil in many ways as being a sort of multi-ethnic uh, uh, immigrant society, uh, 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 democracy, a place where Brazil hopes to uh, um, engage with in terms of technology, investment, education. Um, there's this uh, uh, sense that this is a, a relationship that Brazil can benefit from if it can just get past some of these points of friction and misunderstanding that exist between the two countries. So let's uh, let's wrap it up with uh, the World Cup. Brazil's won five titles in World Cup history. Do you care to make a prediction? Uh, I don't uh, uh, specifically, although I'm hopeful that uh, you know it'd be certainly be wonderful if Brazil did did win on its home turf. I mean, I'm sure that's something that make Brazilians very proud and certainly would make my, my uh, uh, job a lot easier if Brazilians were in a good mood the next time I visit Brazil uh, for, for my work. Uh, but I'll confess, I've always had a soft spot for the, the Argentine okay. uh, team going back to the 1990s where I spent some time there uh, doing research. So uh, um, no predictions thus far, but certainly if Brazil wins, that's going to make President Rousseff's uh, life a lot easier when it comes to, to the election campaigns in the fall. And that'll be a great party in Rio. Um, so that'll be fun to watch. And, and thank you so much, Harold, for your time today. This has been very uh, interesting. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. To learn more, visit brookings.edu slash Latin America. And don't forget to subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria podcast on iTunes.